Our thoughts for this year will be centered around the theme that is above and behind me. Um, And so I want to begin this morning by just a brief introduction of what uh, this year may hold. And I'm certainly not thinking about socially or uh, medically or uh, any of those things. We don't know uh, what, what is going to be. But we know who we are, we know who we've been called to be, and so our our thoughts will center around, uh, perhaps not with every lesson, and maybe you won't be able to tie it in with every thought, but the idea that we are one in the Lord. Um, That should inspire us to a sense of community and fellowship and family, and we're going to be building toward that. Now, we're not going to theme each month as we have done. I will probably regret that around July or August, and then I will determine that next year we'll have monthly themes, and that's fine. We will, we will go with the ebb and flow uh, of this particular year. Last year has proven that while you may make a plan, you may not get to fulfill it the way that you want to, and so this year we'll have less of one, and maybe we'll feel like we've accomplished a little bit more when we get to the end of it if we are all still here together Uh, in this place. There are a lot of things that we should do together. And while we may not mention this every week, I want us to be a people. And I'm going to challenge us to be a people who together sing. That is, we worship. We we, we make it a point to to be in this place, and if not, to be tuned in uh, on this stream and to be with this people on the Lord's Day. I, I know that you understand now, maybe a little bit more than you did a year ago, how important that is and significant that is. And so we want to be a people this year that sing together. We want to be a people that study together, that make Bible class a priority, that, that, that reward the, the individuals who've put so much time and energy and effort and spent their talents to to decorate and provide and, and, and to get ready to be here on Sunday evening and on Wednesday evening to, to open our Bibles and study together. We want to be one in that effort. And if you are here this morning or, or listening and you're not used to doing that, it's not a common practice for you, I, personally, I am begging that you spend some time this year not just studying at home, not just studying on your own, not just reading through the Bible in a year but making a point to come back with the saints, to be here at this place as Bible classes are offered and invest in those moments, in those times together. This year we want to be a people not only who sing together and study together, but people who struggle together. It's very possible in our, in our struggles that we turn inward and isolated. We carry ourselves with the idea that I can handle it or no one else needs to know or no one else will really care. I'm not sure that we can be one in Christ the way that God intended for us to be one without struggling together at some point, without sharing our difficulties and helping bear one another's burdens. And so this year, we're going to talk about struggling together. I believe that we should sit together. Uh, I'm not advocating, by the way, to take away the, the rows between, although that would be great. I mean that we need to be together socially, daily in matters that are not huge or important or significant or life-changing and sit together and drink coffee and discuss the weather and talk about football and sit together this year. 
I believe we need to celebrate together. When someone experiences something worthy of of rejoicing, that we all rejoice together. Birthdays and anniversaries and the birth of children and a job promotion. The things in life that we would would share with, who do we share it with? Who do we think about? We may think about our our parents or our children or our our, our cousins or our, our, our neighbors or our... What about our church family? I want my church family to know. I want them to, to, to say congratulations and, and, and to have that smile of, of approval because I've done something and I've accomplished something. We, we need to celebrate together. This year we need to sow together. We need to share the gospel. Not, not just in our personal studies in this building that are primarily made up of Christians, but opportunities to sit down with people outside of these walls and outside of this fellowship and say, here's who Christ is. Do you want to know him better? And so together. I'm going to, to insist, while my insistence is nothing more than a voice from a pulpit, that we be one. That we be a people that blend together. That we're closer. Maybe not in proximity, but in heart and in mission and in mind and in purpose at the end of this year than we are right now. So that's, that's going to be our, our aim and our focus this year. I would, I would highly encourage you and beg of you actually to pray toward that end this week to include it. May the University Church of Christ be a family. Simple as that. And I believe it would include all of those things that we've already mentioned and that we will highlight throughout the rest of this year. There is ample evidence in Scripture of what happens when a kingdom is divided, right? In fact, Jesus, as he answers the argument, the outlandish and unfounded argument of the Pharisees that he was performing miracles by the power of the devil, he made this statement in Matthew Matthew 12, rather in verse 25, any kingdom... Divided against itself is laid waste. In fact, he moves from the kingdom can't be divided and and function. And he says, neither can a city nor a house. It's not possible to to attempt to accomplish something something noteworthy and powerful and important (coughs) as a group of people and do so divided. Doesn't work that way. Now, that's not merely a biblical spiritual principle, is it? That's just a a principle of reality. It's a concept that that, that supersedes and permeates every aspect of our lives. The history of the people of Jesus, the physical people of Jesus, indicates this to us, doesn't it? You read over in the Old Testament, in 1 Kings chapter 12, how that when, when the northern tribes split apart... and ...and even made the declaration that we have no part with David... We have no inheritance in Jesse. We will go somewhere else. We will do something else. The end of Israel as history knew it was that day. Because from that moment on, you refer to them differently. You think of them differently. There were different prophets sent to different places. They worshipped differently. And eventually they fell. They fell prey to idolatry and to wickedness and immorality and captivity because of their division physically 
because of their separation, because of the differences that they made. We've seen this in our own world, our own history, our own families. We've seen it in our current world, haven't we? Haven't we? You know, I don't get nervous very often, super nervous very often anymore when I get up to speak. I'm still nervous to a certain degree every time I preach. But I'll tell you what, I was more nervous this morning than I've been in a long time. You know what, what, I, what I did, what I had to do that made me so nervous? Just think about it for a moment in your mind. Things that have transpired this morning, the things that have been said from this pulpit, what could have made me nervous? You know what it was? It was reviewing our in and out policy and when we are to wear masks and when we're not to and, and how that affects people. I was more nervous to do that than anything else I've done today and probably anything else I'll do the rest of this week. You know why? Because that subject is polarizing. It's divisive. It, it, it separates people in their ideologies, maybe even in where, where, they, where they, they, they stand physically, where they sit physically, what they do. We've watched as our own nation is, is a, an example of a, a kingdom that's divided falls, period. Period. But then what happens when a kingdom unites? What happens when a kingdom unites? Turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 8. I want our thoughts to come this morning for just a brief few moments together. From some things that happened when Israel united. Now, remember, what happens in 2 Samuel 8 predates 1 Kings 12. So they're not going to stay with this. They're not going to continue in this. But there will be a time that they will have some, some marked advantages from being a people that were united. And I believe from that we can learn some things ourselves. Now, <clears throat> when you look at chapter 8, you, you can't look at it devoid of the chapters that come before it. And while time does not permit us to go back and to start in maybe the call of Abraham or or the call of Moses, or the, the, the conquering of the land, we will back up just a few chapters. You back up to chapter 5, and you'll learn there that David takes the throne. David is appointed king. Now, there's a little bit of a dilemma with David, because David's not a, an heir. He's not a son. The, the traditional power uh, transition from, from one generation to the next doesn't take place because Saul... David is not Saul's descendant. Now, the Lord has anointed him. The Lord has called him. The Lord's appointed him. But people recognize the transition of power in a monarchy from, from father to son. And so David seemed, it would appear on, script, on pages of Scripture, to have a little bit of difficulty in exercising and claiming complete authority over a united Israel. That seemed to be the case. But David is take, assumes the throne, takes the throne. He also, in chapter 5 takes Jerusalem. He, he conquers enemies. He, he takes the city. Understand this, just as a, as a point of, of religious history, Jerusalem was not always the centerpiece of God's people, the, 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 the launching pad, the, the spot from which they ruled. It became that as David conquered Israel or conquered Jerusalem and made it that place. But, but David decides, I'm going to have this city. I'm going I'm to conquer this city. And not only that, but in chapter 6, he brings God to that city in the form of the Ark of the Covenant. Now, there are some struggles that go with that, but that's not our point here this morning, just to trace the history. David assumes the throne. He takes Jerusalem. He defeats enemies. He brings God to the, to the city in the in form of the Ark. And 
In chapter 7, remember David vows to build God a house, a permanent place of residency in that new city where he could dwell among his people. Now, David is allowed to do that, but plans are made for that to take place. And the Bible reveals to us in chapter 8 that David then ruled over all Israel. Chapter 8 and verse 15. So all of these things that have transpired in chapter 5 and chapter 6 and chapter 7 culminates in this idea that the kingdom is now united. It's now one under the rule of David. What then happens in that place? Four things, I think, from chapter 8 <coughs> that become clear. The advantages and the benefits and, and the byproduct of a kingdom being united. Number one, when a kingdom is united, victory abounds. Victory abounds. I don't know if you've taken time ever to read 1 Samuel chapter 8. If you're in a, in a, a reading plan through the Bible... You probably won't get there till, till March or so. So I, I don't know that, 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 that you'll remember this when we get there if you're reading that way through the scriptures. But in chapter, chapter 8 begins, the Bible says, Now after this it came about that David defeated the Philistines and subdued them. Now that phrase, that thought is going to continue over and over and over. In, in, in verse 2 he defeated Moab. In verse 3 he defeated he defeated. Had a deezer. And then in, 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 in verse 4 or verse, or verse 5, those of Damascus. Okay? He defeats, he defeats, he defeats. Now, there is a likelihood that the events of chapter 8 are not fully chronological. There's some evidence, perhaps, that some of these victories came before chapter 8, that some come a little bit after chapter 8. In fact, the, the interesting thing is, when you go back to chapter 7... The Bible is going to reveal that God tells David, I will appoint you a place. And then after these things, chapter 8 opens, and that place is in the nation, among the nations, among the people, in the city of Jerusalem. And so from that place, he goes out and he conquers and he defeats. Over and over and over again, victory is had because the kingdom is united. What's the point? Unity breeds victory. It just does. Being one gives you a, a, a sense of empowerment and authority and reign and rule. Do we need that? Does the church here at this place need a victorious spirit? Absolutely. You know why? I would say for two reasons. Number one, because we've been victorious. We should reflect in our thoughts, our actions, and our hearts what God has done for us. We have already won. We believe that, friends? We've already won. I know it doesn't feel like it. I know it doesn't look like it. I know we don't talk about it a lot. <coughs> but we're victorious. The greatest enemy we will ever face has already been defeated. And the promise of the last enemy has already been made. The rest, as some would say, is gravy. It's icing on the cake. It isn't always fun. It isn't always enjoyable. Friends, we've, we've been victorious. Now, if we don't live victorious lives, it will impact the way the world sees us and the way that we view ourselves. And sometimes we don't live that way because we are a divided people, because we're not one. In fact, it, it may be that we believe 
<coughs> that we can never be victorious until we can work out every single difference we have. That we can never really live a, a victorious life until there's absolutely no disagreement. Now, if we feel that way, I don't want to, to, to hurt anyone's feelings or, or cause anyone to believe that, that they'll never accomplish what they want to accomplish, but we'll never get there, friends. We'll never get there. If we think the division over political parties or, or response to pandemics is, 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 is something we've got to agree on before we can be one in Christ, just another one of those things in life. You know, they, they existed in the first century. They existed in, in the days of Paul and Peter. And while there were things that they absolutely had to agree on, they actually had, had to say the same thing about, had to believe the same. There were other things. We talked about this little last week where the Lord said, listen, you've got to agree to not let those things divide you. That's the, that's the resolution we make. That's the agreement that we have. And that, friends, is a victorious life. It allows me to focus on things that, that truly matter in the end when it's all said and done. But victory abounds where there is unity, but on the other hand, where we are not united, we will either feel or we will be defeated. We should be one because we love and appreciate victory. Number two. Where a kingdom unites, or when a kingdom unites, resources are multiplied. Resources are multiplied. In fact, if, if you keep reading in chapter 8, you're going to read in verses 7 through 12, not necessarily now <coughs> about the people that David defeated, but what he gained from it. Now, mind you that the Bible isn't divided out into sermon segments like we like to divide it out. This is a narrative. This was what happened. So some of the spoils of victory are mentioned back in the first six verses. He, he got horses and he got chariots and, and now and, and servants in the first six verses. Now in 7 through 12, he gets silver and gold and bronze. Now I believe it's necessary just as a Bible student for us to remember and to appreciate the, the, the danger of David's actions here. Sometimes we read these things and we think, wow, David was such a great king. He was such a great warrior. He was such a great provider. We need kings like that. We need presidents like that. We need leaders like that. Listen, if you go back to Deuteronomy 17 and you read about God's warnings against his future kings, he tells them, don't gather to yourselves horses. Don't gather to yourselves silver and gold. And don't gather to yourselves women. David does all three of those in chapters 5 through 8 of 2 Samuel. And it's going to cost him one day. But the point is that when they were united as a kingdom and they won victories together, their resources multiplied. That's just a fact. Whether they should have kept them all or not, whether they should have seen them in view of God's plan and God's warning in Deuteronomy or not, that's another matter for another time. But when there is victory, there are added resources where more can be done, where more can be spent, where more can be built, where more can be defended. The same is true in the Lord's church. That when we are one, we are a people automatically that multiply our resources at that very moment. I'm not talking specifically this morning about contribution. You know, if you put 
If you have $5,000 in the, in, the, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the plate and we become of one heart, that doesn't become $10,000. Okay, that's not the point. That would be nice. That would be an easy way to, to be able to do more and spend more and provide more. That's not how it works. Here is the point. When we are a people who buy into the same purpose and same vision, the same agenda, the same concepts, serving the same God, doing the same thing, we will do more together and we'll do more for each other. It just happens that way. But you know what happens when people get disgruntled with one another in the church? When they get disgruntled with the preacher or with the elders in the church or, or the older members or the younger members or the, or, or the Bible class teachers, you know what they, they start tend to do? They tend to pull back and pull away. Where, where you might used to have had 20 families who will do, now you've only got 15. Your resources have diminished by a fourth. What's the, what's the culprit? A lack of unity, a lack of oneness. A lack of being together. And I think that's why you see congregations of, of far less size do a lot more in the kingdom. It's not because the people there just have a, a special skill set. That they have pockets that are unlimited. It's because in that place, in that location, under that eldership, those individuals are one. And 50 of those can do more than 5,000 can divided. Our resources multiply when we are together. And we need to remember that in this coming year. I believe a lot's been done for the Lord in the last calendar year. I believe that. I believe God's people work for God no matter what's going on. But I would encourage us to take stock for just a moment or two. And I'm not going to go through it. I mean in your own mind and heart about the measure of this church in the last 365 days. What have we collectively done? You know, there's a likelihood if we look close enough and are honest enough that we're going to say to ourselves, you know, we didn't, we didn't get a lot done this year. And you know what one of the reasons for that's going to be? Because there was a bulk of time we weren't here. We weren't together. And the thing, when we were together... We, we limited other things. We, we didn't get to go to camp. We didn't get to go on mission trips. We didn't get to that togetherness. And understandably so. I'm not saying that we should reverse time and, and undo the things that we did. What I'm suggesting is, is that when you divide the people of God, you diminish its resources, period. So for the next 365 days, what we have to determine is, listen, however that's going to work, we've got to be back together. Maybe not physically in the same building all the time, but we've got to be on the same page, friends. We've got to be working toward the same aim. We've got to be worried about the same things. Because when we are united, when a kingdom stands together, its resources are multiplied. Number three, when a kingdom is united, glory is achieved. Glory is achieved. There's an interesting statement made in verse 13. The Bible says, so David made a name... And then in italics, the Bible says, for himself. Now, it's going to go on to tell us how many men he killed and, and a particular episode that, that, that made David seem great in the eyes of people. The question then comes to my mind, what's that talking about? If you go back again to chapter 7, there's a promise made in verse 9 that God will make David's name great. It sounds actually very similar to the promise made to Abraham in Genesis 12, 2, that God would make his name great. 
But the question is, is, is did all of this happen in chapter 8? Really back to chapter 5 through chapter 8. Did it happen so David would look like a hero? Did it happen so David would receive glory? So he would be considered this great king? I'm not convinced that's why it happened at all. Any more than I'm convinced that God called Abraham so that the world would look and say, hey man, look how great Abraham is. In fact, there are a couple of phrases in chapter 8. Look at the end of verse 6. After this great summary of victories, it says in the end of verse 6, and the Lord helped David wherever he went. And then you drop down to verse 14 at the end of this statement of, uh, of David's name being established. It says, and the Lord helped David wherever he went. I'm convinced David's name became great and Abraham's name became great. So the one who helped them get there would be glorified. So the people would look and say, hey, the God of David is a great God. You know what happens when we live victorious lives and we pool our resources? The world looks at us and says, their God is great. Their God is powerful. Listen, we're not here to put the university congregation on the map. We are here to reflect the glory of the one who created us and sustains us in this place. And a people who are one, a kingdom that is united, achieves that purpose and glory. Because really, when you, when you separate us out, when you segment us off, friends, we're not a whole lot. We're not a whole lot. We haven't done a whole lot. We haven't made a whole lot of difference in our world and our society. We haven't accomplished a lot of great things. Our names don't headline newspaper clippings or 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 or. or are not found on, on, on plaques outside of buildings. We're just a, a group of folks. You know, when you put us together, united by the blood of Christ, we will achieve a status and a reputation that will reflect the greatness of the greatest being who's ever been known. That, that's where we stand. That's who we are. We don't do that divided. In fact, divided we fall, right? We're laid desolate. But together, as a kingdom of believers, glory is achieved. And finally, and I don't know that sometimes finally means most important or most significant. I don't know that that's the case. We're just following the narrative here. In a kingdom that's united, justice is administered. In fact, that's, that's exactly what's said in verse 15, so David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and righteousness for all his people. I would say that the third in line is the most important, that God gets the glory for all that we do. But the summary thought in the, in the chapter is, as David blend, was able to blend everybody together in one, get them in one city, get God located there, have plans for the house of God to be built, God's glory to be illuminated that place, then finally people could be treated fairly, and justly as they ought. Now I'd ask you, have you ever felt mistreated? It's not just a preacher question, it's legitimate. Have you ever felt mistreated? Have you ever felt left out? Have you ever felt unimportant? Insignificant? Less than? Put down or belittled? Have you ever felt that way in the church? You know, there's, there's a good chance that the answer to both of those questions, both those sets of questions, is yes. Why? Why do we feel that way? Why would others treat each other that way? 
Maybe the heart of it is deeper. Maybe it's more complex. But I would say there's a lack of unity. A lack of togetherness leads to that. You see, if, if, if the needs of, of these people over here are more important to me than the needs of these people over here, even without understanding it or realizing it, these people may feel less than in my sight. Just simply because, and I can't, be, I can't administer justice and righteousness to all of Israel if I'm not united with all of Israel. It doesn't happen that way. Now, in this sense, it seems that what's being talked about in, in Israel's history is correction, punishment, law-keeping, legal justice is being handed down the way it should be. Let me ask you this. Have you ever needed help and not gotten it? Have you ever stood worthy of correction and no one offered it? You ever felt that way in the church? Why is it that we let our brothers and sisters get so entangled in sin, watch them go down a dark path, and, and never reach out, never call out, never stand in their way, never, never reach and, and bring them back? Is it because our minds are too fixated on other people and not that one who's gone astray? Leave that to the people that they're close to. Leave that to the elders. That's the preacher's job. There's always somebody else that can do what we ought to be doing. We'll never administer justice. We'll never reach out and, and rescue those who are lost. We'll never confront someone and say, listen, you should not be this way until we are a people who are of one heart and one mind. In fact, what we tend to do is say, well, you know, they're, they're, that's their own choice. Everybody has free will. But you see, as, as a people who are one in Christ, there really doesn't exist anymore. I don't get to have my will and my agenda and my way. Nor do you get to have yours. There's one and it's Christ. And if I'm not following Christ, I need you, friends. I need you to stand in my way and say, not here. Not among these people. Not in service to our God. Let's get this right. You see, of all that we're missing by not fully being one, that's the most dangerous. And maybe that's why it's at the end. That's the most dangerous. I know this. I know that if we aren't one and that we don't care about one another and we haven't shown that in our struggles and our celebrations and where we sit and how we worship, it's going to mean very little when you come and stand in my way and say, hey, you can't act like that. My thought's going to be, who are you? What place do you have in my life? We're not one. Now, I realize that that reaction I just shared with you is a calloused reaction that tends to just muddy the waters. But friends, it happens every single day when people who are not one try to act like they are when it comes to correction and justice and discipline. We need that. In fact, God built it into his spiritual kingdom, didn't he? Church discipline and rescue and restoration, and confrontation, and rebuke. And the idea sometimes is, well, we can't, just can't do that because no one accepts that today. Friends, I would suggest no one accepts it because it's not done from a heart of oneness and togetherness and love. See, if I haven't sat with that person and celebrated with them, it's going to be hard to sit with them and, and, and confront them. 
What happens when a kingdom is divided? Just turn on the news. What happens when a kingdom is united? Should be that we say, just look at the Lord's church. Can they say that about us? Is that reflective of who we are? Are we a people who administer justice to all? Do we seek the glory of God? Do we celebrate our victories together and multiply our resources? Or do we just reflect the rest of the religious world around us who fight over things that really don't matter? Thus robbing God of his glory and the church of his resources. That perhaps is only an answer or question that we can answer individually first. And so what I would encourage you to do that. We sing a song of invitation for a couple of reasons. One is to make it more accessible for someone to walk the aisle, that they don't have to stand up while everyone's still seated and everyone's looking at them. So we sing that song as sort of a, a little bit of a cover. So that if someone wants to walk the aisle, they can feel comfortable in doing that and, and share with us their struggles. We can pray with them. And if you need that, we'll do that. But the greater reason why we offer a song of invitation is so we can have a moment of reflection. So we can bring the thoughts of the sermon and the scripture readings and the prayers the Lord's Supper and the celebration of that. And, and we can put that all in one place in our mind and say, hey, is, is my life what it needs to be? This morning I would ask as we sing this song in just a moment that that's where our minds and hearts turn to. Am I one with my brethren? Am I, am I a part of a kingdom that is united? And if not, what am I missing because of it? And what can I do to make it right? Whatever your need is, Christ has the answer. We'll help you how we can to find that answer if you'll come while we stand and sing.